Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. Hey everybody, uh, welcome to the Filament Games Podcast. I am one of your hosts. I'm Brandon Pitzer. I do the marketing at Filament Games. I'm another one of the hosts. I'm Dan Norton. I'm the Chief Creative Officer at Filament. Yes, sir. And I am not a host. I'm Dan White. <laughs> I'm the CEO. Yes, we have a guest with us today, the CEO, Dan White, taking charge and introducing himself. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> True CEO move right there. Um, uh, he's <laughs> he's uh, joining us today um, to talk about our recently released game, Roboco. Um, very excited to have this discussion with you, Dan. Um, but first, I uh, want to talk about what are we all playing right now? What kind of video games are you playing? Anything, you know, maybe recently released? R-O-B-O-C-O. See, I, I still want to make an ad like that. I think, Josh, like there's something there. There's a jingle in there. Exactly. Sure. There totally yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So at some point, maybe we'll there's use a, speak. There's a town in Wisconsin called Oconomowoc. And their sports team is called the Five O's because Oconomowoc has five O's in a row in it. I did not know that. Yeah. And I grew I up like, way closer to Oconomowoc than you did. I that's amazing. Yeah. That's a charming a charming thing for an otherwise not particularly charming place. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, no disparagement to Oconomowoc. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's, place of of wisconsin mysteries like all wisconsin places <laughs> i once encountered someone named oconomowoc in world of warcraft and Amazing. uh you know we had a nice chat about it you know i was like i know where you're from because there's only one kind of person who would know what that word is <laughs> <laughs> That's <amazing. laughs> um yeah, yeah good I'll, do, I'll do what i'm playing yeah what are uh, you playing I'm, I'm playing roboco okay all right which part yeah. of roboco um so way back when we were still do an early round testings and we'd just gotten the sandwich level out. I had set out to make the most advanced sandwich delivery robot of all time. Um, my main innovations were that it had two sets of wheels that would fit under the table. Okay. And then it had a little release chassis that would drop the sandwich from like a kind of look like a catapult cup holder that they would just like slide the bottom out and, let the sandwich drop state straight down. So the whole robot kind of had like a C shape to it, but I called it the sandwich scorpion. That's, you know, that sandwich scorpion is uh, alive and well. It's uh, definitely something that we have rebuilt many times. If you look on the steam page and you uh, watch the first 10 minutes of Roboco video, oh, which the scorpion live on. It is the sandwich scorpion. Oh, itself. that's delightful. Yeah, so I, yeah. I'm making sandwich scorpion 3.0 right now because I want to <laughs> use the same chassis, but I'm now going to collect all of the secret missions and get my, get the sandwich scorpion able to ace the whole level. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I did not know the sandwich scorpion, uh, scorpion originated with you. Um, that's a bit of Roboco lore that, uh, even escaped my notice. Um, but that's good to know because yeah, that the sandwich scorpion, that was a prototype, but it really is among the most effective ways <laughs> to, uh, to solve that first level. Um, for my part, obviously I'm playing Roboco too. Um, and also playing, uh, the game of telling people about Roboco, uh, which if you're not aware, uh, Roboco is a wholesome sandbox game about designing and building robots to serve the needs of squishy hapless humans in the world of tomorrow. And you can learn more about it at Roboco.co. 
or during the rest of this podcast, uh, because we're going to talk today mostly about um, how we made RoboCo. So uh, basically winding back the clock, we've been working on this project now uh, since 2017. And uh, like we said, you know, just recently put it out. The release date was uh, November 3rd. We are very excited to uh, finally get that up on Steam as an early access title. Um, but yeah, let's take a trip back in time and uh, talk about... I guess Josh will add that afterwards. Yeah, oh, that was better than... I don't know. I think that was good. Ship it. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So um, let's go back in time to, to uh, you know, 2016-ish. Um, which, you know, that's that's as, as best as I can do, given the fact that there's, you know, a lot of things that happened since then. And some of them were, you know, worldwide and traumatic. So I'm my memory's a little fuzzy. But um, <laughs> looking back at 2016, uh, why can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what we were doing with the biz- the publishing business unit at the time um, and kind of where that fits into like the overall filament structure and how we started um, orienting it towards this project? Yeah, filament since the dawn of time, I think like every services business has had aspirations of also being a product business. The grass is always greener, as it were. <laughs> and as you as you well know, we built a library of middle school science games called Plex under Department of Education and National Science Foundation funding in the days of yore. And we tried to sell video games to classrooms. It turns out that we were perhaps a bit ahead of our time with the products that we were attempting to sell. But uh, not to be deterred, we continued to apply for taxpayer dollars to subsidize our investigations into ways that we could productize video games instead of solely developing them on a services basis. Thanks, America. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, taxpayers. And that eventually, yeah, as you said, led us back to the National Science Foundation for a phase one grant. And that's where the, the story of Roboco began. It's interesting to think about the specific year in which it did begin. And I should really get my own story straight here because after launch, I've been telling people all sorts of different things about how long we've been working on this game. <laughs> and, yeah, and it'd be probably good if I knew exactly <laughs> actually how. So what is the official... What is the official time? How long has it actually been? Has it been since 2016? So uh, per when I was looking at like the records um, on the NSF website, the project duration starts in April 2017, I believe. Okay. So Um, five years. So, but that, you know, however, that's like, that's when the work itself began. Right. Um, And so I think the actual like pitching and like the grant proposal work that was being done, I think primarily in 2016, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, okay. So five or six years, depending on where you officially consider the uh, starting rifle to have gone off. Right. I guess I don't use rifles, do they? No. Beakers. That would be, that would be a little overkill. Yeah. Er- Erlenmeyer <laughs> flasks. They throw it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so, you know, c- talk a little bit about um, the shape of that grant. Like, what was the the nature? Kind of like, you know, I think part of it was like we were looking at VR because um, at the time that was like very exciting, emergent medium um, that was uh, just starting to get you know what you could call meaningful traction with the consumer audiences. So, um, tell us a little about that and like kind of how that took shape. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, everybody. I think everybody in the learning games industry, well, maybe the game games industry at large, but particularly in learning games industry, was excited about how we could apply this new exciting hardware to our craft, to our age-old craft. And when it comes to VR, I think we had lots of visions about uh, physically mediated tasks that could be taught that were essentially where a lot of the learning and a lot of the cognition was embodied in the performance of a physical task that we could then teach through virtual VR-based video games in a way that we had never been able to before through a mouse and keyboard interface or through a mobile interface. And so RoboCo, what, yeah, I think in large part was born, well, RoboEngineers, as it was called back then, was born from this idea that uh, we there was this new frontier to explore in the form of virtual reality-based learning games. And I think that's actually, I think it was, I think it began as a hardware-driven objective or vision, as opposed to even necessarily uh, an engineering-driven vision. And that came that came a bit later. So yeah, we went to the NSF and we said, VR is this new cutting-edge emerging hardware medium for for building learning games. And uh, we'd like to see what we can do to change the state of education with this really cool new technology. Unfortunately, the technology was, again, too new. <laughs> that's, a, that's a theme across our 17-year history as a company. We've done a lot of things maybe a little bit too soon. And this was another one of them because then we, when we eventually went out to uh, find publishing and distribution partnerships for this VR uh, for the VR version of Robo Engineers, as we were building at the time, there just wasn't a great there wasn't a great market for VR at the time, and and with no market, there's no publishers. So we had a lot of pitch conversations to publishers who basically said, you know, come back to me when you want to talk about doing something on a console or desktop. Sure. Yeah, I think um, one thing that's interesting to me about uh, particularly like the initial phase one grant was, um, I think, you know, we were calling it STEM finest hour at that point. And mm -hmm. um, there was even, there's a couple of like early prototype projects, right? Um, one of them took the form of like a mission to Mars style experience um, that I think at the time it was uh, Marshall Berenger was working with us on that. He was um, oh, yeah. our, our outreach specialist, and we were we were working on um, the idea that you were on like a Mars base, and the base was in crisis. Um, we were also looking at asymmetrical experiences, which I thought was really interesting and cool, um, mm -hmm. where it would have been like one kid in a VR headset, and then the rest of the classroom was uh, like mission control, all using like Android tablets or iPads or something like that to interact. And, you know, each of them would have kind of their own specific, like, you know, domain that they had to uh, maintain and have control over sort of like an Artemis or a space team type thing. Yeah. That's um, still not a bad idea. No, it's still not. Um, yeah. I'm still, I still think it's a cool idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe we can make another run at that one, but, um, but yeah, so it, to me, like one of the most interesting parts of that, this phase of the story is just that we were, like like White said, it's it, it was hardware driven. We were looking at like, how do we harness this interesting new technology? And um, we explored a number of ideas before we ultimately wound up on this, in this realm of um, robotics. Um, so what you spoke a little bit too about just like our experiences, like pitching the game and taking it out into... Um, 
you know, commercial spaces um, to try and find publishers. So um, let's talk a little bit about like that experience, like kind of what was the form that took? I think like someone who is looking at either making their own educational game like Roboco or even just like a general indie game would probably be interested in just like what you learned there and, and how that was for you. Oh yeah, that was wild. So for, that was a very different world for us. First of all, we went to conferences like Game Connection out in San Francisco. We went to Game Connection at least twice, maybe three times. And for those who are unfamiliar with Game Connection, you basically uh, you set up appointments with publishers, the publishers who will, who will take your your invite, and you have it's kind of like speed dating for game developers and publishers. You have a very short period of time to pitch your concept. You can back it up with some concept art. Some people have simple playable prototypes some people have nearly finished games they're all across the spectrum and the publisher either adds you to a short list of potential candidates for support and partnership or you they end the conversation there and that's that um i think it's for me it was a really interesting perspective into how different people think about the consumer gaming industry and what the ingredients are for success in the consumer gaming industry. Mm. And I'll tell you, it's a little bit like the stock market. You'll talk to 10 different people, 10 different experts, quote unquote experts, and they'll give you 10 different theories about how to play the game of the stock market successfully. Maddeningly, they might all be right. And (laughs) exactly, (laughs) exactly. So I think as as with any anything that follows on consumer trends, there are there are some things you can learn from precedent, past performance of different types of products on the market, and there are some things that are wholly as as yet undiscovered by the industry at large, based on the new you know the next Minecraft or the next Fortnite or the next you know game franchise that's going to completely shake up the industry and or the next piece of hardware in some cases. So there we were, you know, very small fish in a very lo- large pond, uh, talking to people about this VR robotics vision that was going to teach people engineering. But sh- you don't have to tell them that because it's just going to be a fun sandbox game. Uh, and yeah, it didn't <laughs> it didn't go particularly well, but it was a lot of fun. So um, so yeah, we we did you know came back we we did come back I should say um, empty-handed unfortunately um, from those uh, several runs at Game Connection. Um, I think we also even at that time took a I won't name any names, but a few runs at some other kind of private uh, venture funds and and venture capital type. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, organizations that uh, we, we, we got a little bit farther down the road with them and we did. Th- so I actually should say um, there were a few conversations where we were actually to the point where we were talking about even like a re- revenue share structure, you know. Um, so to your credit, we we did land a few solid leads um, that just ultimately didn't pan out. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, we got close a couple times. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and we should um, take a quick pit stop on the topic of the VC conversations, because that was a wholly different experience as well. And I, some people are really interested in, in different mechanisms for funding, definitely learning games, particularly learning games that are, um, geared toward the consumer entertainment space. I think there, I'm actually surprised that there are not more consumer entertainment games that are funded by 
VC arrangements or equity based arrangements. Um, I mean, I, I think the 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 basic reason is that a lot of investment firms are looking for to invest in something that's going to ostensibly grow forever, which of course games do not. Games grow and then they have a a peak and then a denouement and then unless you're you know world of warcraft or something like that the game that will just never ever ever go away <laughs> um, <laughs> but we can uh, safely say they're on quite a bit lower plateau than they used to be that's for sure yeah, exactly exactly for anybody who is not aware um dan and alex and i all met eons ago and around that time was when world of warcraft was uh, first released and rising to prominence and I, I i just absolutely hated the game but everybody around me was playing it ad nauseum and talking about it ad nauseum so i carried a, a long uh yardstick right. that i would threaten to whack people with if they yeah. talked about world of warcraft too much but there were so many square buttons to press white and we had to evaluate which buttons to press <laughs> in, in which sequence <laughs> for maximized damage per second it's mm. a gripping conversation. Ah, oh, you're lucky we work vir virtually now, Mr. <laughs> Norton. I might bust out that stick. <laughs> stick just enters the frame. Yes. Uh, <laughs> reaches in through Norton's window. Uh, uh, all right. But yeah, the, the VC conversations were really interesting. And um, I think ultimately we didn't make that work because they were looking for a 10x return and and i, I would never want to promise somebody a 10x return on the consumer game space because it does feel a little bit like going to the casino um but even if that wasn't the case as everybody knows and i'm sure we'll talk about later we also have edu aspirations for roboco and it's i think it's very hard in the ed tech space if you are content oriented play to to promise a a 10x at least on a at least on a learning game um as opposed to say like an entire platform an entire curriculum or something like mm -hmm. that it's just generally not not the speed with which uh x's are accrued yeah i think that's an important, <laughs> in that particular sector that's an important point too is that uh, you know we could uh, a learning game solution or a learning solution in general may 10x but the horizon is probably going to look quite right. a bit different than what right. uh right what a, a industry other than education would provide to a venture capital right. firm. And, and they're yeah, typically looking for something on the order of five years, sometimes even more aggressively than that. So. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing that I realize I don't know that might be interesting for people is like, yeah, how, how like cutthroat or helpful or, or candorous or weaselly were these conversations for publishers hmm. and VCs? Did you feel like people were, negotiating openly and fairly or do you think people are trying to figure out an angle or like yeah how did how did it just how did it feel to like go through those i think it was a mixed bag there were definitely some some bottom feeders who i think have a strategy of contacting as many indies as possible and then when the indies feel flattered and starstruck that they're being contacted by a publisher they hand over 50 percent of their revenue in exchange for very thin marketing and promotion promises yeah and then that's a numbers game for those people they get enough indies on their on their bankroll and uh yeah sooner or later one of them's gonna hit it big yep i so remember definitely... mentioning that a lot of the promises of marketing would be extremely ambiguous and when we yes. asked for clarification of what the actual marketing effort would be that was like everything got hard yeah um, i will say that is a in my experience in marketing that is a fairly typical thing um 
marketing promises tend to be made out of um, weasel words and that kind of thing, you know? Um, it's just, it, it sort of comes with the territory and, and yeah, that this, it's certainly manifested um, in, in these conversations. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I think that is, yeah, true, true across publisher and distribution partner conversations. It seems in general, like you have to be as an Indian, particularly probably as a first timer, no name, first timer to the consumer entertainment game space, like filament, you have to be willing to take a bit of a leap of faith on, on partnerships, understanding mm-hmm. that, if they put in a little, probably what's going to happen is they'll put in a little bit of effort. And if they see an ROI on that, they'll put in a little bit more and they'll keep putting in more if they keep seeing return. But if they don't, they're going to invest their efforts elsewhere. Yep. I think that's true. I think, I mean, I think as well that part of, I think another phenomenon that I at least observed from my point of view was like, so a lot of the deals were just openly not that great, you know? Like they're because it's like you're you you don't have like a history of success in the in the space, you don't have like a huge portfolio of commercial facing games. And so like, you know, whatever revenue share we can offer to you is going to be is going to be poorer than someone who has more established yeah. foothold in the industry. And so, you know, the basically it's like the 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 newer you are and the less proven you are like the more open they are about giving you a less advantageous deal because they, for them, they're covering what they perceive as their risk by doing that. Right. Yes. Yeah. And and that's actually the, probably the nexus point for the VC space and the game publishing space is that your, your track record is huge in terms of the the amount of bearing it has on how, uh, good the terms are going to be. And I think that's why the conversation with the VCs was actually in many ways more fruitful. I, I, maybe that's the wrong word. We had lo- we had longer and more in-depth engagements with, with those prospective partners and the game publishers in many cases, because we have a track record of success as business people, even right. though we don't necessarily have a track record of success as consumer game developers. Yep, very strong B two B track on that side. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you have it. Uh, a very exciting uh, discussion where I got to use the phrase B two B. You know that never <laughs> <laughs> never puts anyone to sleep. Um, so <laughs> so breathe some life back into uh, what I'm talking about, at least. Um, so we, fr- you know, from this point, obviously, we we don't have our publisher. We were unable to make one work, um, and so. Uh, we, we did return, as, as Dan had said, to um, National Science Foundation for a phase two grant. Um, and so uh, this time we had used all of the learning and, um, you know, even, I guess, testimonial information, you could call it, from our conversations with publishers um, to make strong arguments about the fact that a desktop version would be required um, to create like the, the sort of traction that we wanted to see for this game in the education space. Um, and so that was also a successful grant. Um, so that started, uh, in 2018, that was when that funding started to kick in. Um, and at this point we took the VR prototype that we had created up to that point, we transit or we started transporting a lot of those features over into like a desktop user interface, um, and started to also like solidify the art style and humor of the game. 
and start to do uh, some of our testing um, because part of the phase two of an NSF grant is to do formal testing uh, with a research firm. And so we did a bunch of that with a firm called WestEd. Um, they're a firm that uh, basically this is what they do. They, they work with grantees um, to to pursue the research outcomes of their work. At least that's a big part of, of what they do as an organization. Um, so we worked with them on that. Um, and uh, from this point, I uh, had uh, you know, a compelling prototype um, that incorporated both the VR features and the desktop features. Um, and this is kind of like the pivotal moment for the entire project um, where we were able to take that prototype um, and uh, get uh, FIRST Robotics excited about it. Um, so Dan, let's talk a little bit about that, like how the collaboration with FIRST came to be um, and uh, kind of the origin story there, because that's a super important part of this. Sure. Can can we actually rewind briefly though to the to the Westhead research because oh, certainly. that component has a couple interesting tidbits. The, yeah. I think the biggest one is that it happened amidst the pandemic. So our plan was to do a randomized control trial on RCT in schools with students. And uh, <laughs> students were not in schools, so <laughs> yeah, uh, we, <laughs> so so we had an opportunity to investigate streaming as a technology for uh, getting learning games into the hands of school students, and that was a really interesting, I'll call it digression. Actually, I think for us as a studio overall, again fitting in the theme of mm, probably a little too early. We had a lot of really interesting conversations with streaming partners, both from a technology perspective and from a logistics perspective. And ultimately we ended up dividing our RCT into two different groups. One was accessing the game in traditional fashion via desktop uh, uh, and internet, downloading the game, installing the game. The other was accessing the game via streaming, which was in partnership with Furios, I believe they were called. And so what was interesting about that is that we were simultaneously testing Roboco and asking questions like, does this game increase STEM affinity? Does it increase engineering acumen? Does it make people want to grow up to be engineers and roboticists, et cetera? But at the same time, we were also asking this question of, uh, is streaming a viable way to get video games and other interactive real-time technologies in uh, high fidelity interactive real-time technologies into schools and the answer was a resounding no yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's a i think that's a good learning for for anybody who's listening as well because we definitely had aspirations of like oh well maybe roboco just ends up being the trojan horse and the real business is actually bringing streaming service game streaming service to schools and what we what we ultimately discovered, besides a, a whole slew of just sort of technical and connectivity and bandwidth issues, is that streaming is, well, now everybody's discovered this, right, with Google shuttering Stadia, streaming is so expensive. And I just remember pouring over spreadsheets over and over again, thinking how, like, this is such a cool idea. This really should work. This should be the way that we get games into schools because they have Chromebooks and other low-end devices, and how great would it be if they could play high-end games on low-end devices? And that's the whole vision of streaming. But the costs just end up being absolutely prohibitive. So mm. RIP streaming as a way to get learning games into schools. Yeah, it's you know it may be one of those technologies where, you know, like VR, it has a, a brief 
it takes a brief run at commercial mainstream mm-hmm. success like VR did in the 90s with the Virtual Boy and, and other similar kind of jankier uh, iterations of public-facing VR hardware, you know, and then it goes dormant for about 20 years and then maybe a crowdfunding website. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just bought a Google Stadia and I'm hyped, guys. It's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> But this is, but that's the thing. This was supposed to be the quest, right? Because, or this was supposed to be the rift, I guess. Yeah. Would be the analog because the 20 years ago was, although it wasn't 20 years ago, but it was pretty close to when we founded the company because I remember being in our second office space, which was when we were about five years in. But it was, oh, what was the service called? Uh, game, game on, game live. Play on? Live. Play on? I think it's called Play on. Play on? That sounds right. There was a piece of hardware that you could buy, and it they had a ton of venture funding, and it looked like they were gonna make a go of it for a minute, and then and then it died, shuttered, and then however many years later, there was the resurgence with NVIDIA and Stadia and mm. Xbox Live and Oh, it's not play on. I'll keep digging though. Okay. All right. We will get that to the in the notes. <laughs> Whatever. You know what I'm talking about though, right, Dan? I think we're I think we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, I know. I know you're I, I just gotta yeah, I think this predates me. It's that old. But yes. So then first, let's talk about first. Yes, yes, so, please. So we were introduced to first by Rev Robotics, and this was one of those serendipitous moments where I can't remember exactly how we got connected with Rev, but basically Greg, the CEO, Greg Nidell, the CEO at Rev Robotics, had the essentially the exact same vision that we had for Roboco. And he Rev, for those who aren't familiar, is a robotics hardware company. They sell robotics hardware to schools that participate in competitive robotics programs like FIRST and VEX and things of that nature. And uh yeah, basically he was like, I you know hardware-based robotics robotics competitions is awesome but there are a lot of things that we can't do mostly because they're cost prohibitive and there should totally be virtual robotics competitions and so he actually designed we had this amazing call where he showed us this deck and it was like almost identical slide to slide to a deck that we had created at filament espousing the vision of roboco and digital robotics oh that's amazing in that moment that moment was a really obviously it was a gratifying moment because we were like okay somebody else shares this vision it's always a good sign it's a source of validation but not just anybody it's somebody who already operates in the physical robotics space and is sort of validating the idea that physical robotics does a lot of amazing things but doesn't do all the things and that there is a place for a, a virtual counterpart So from there, um, you know, he, he, I mean, it's amazing that he had this like sort of, uh, parallel inspiration. Um, Oh, on live. It was called on live. It's called on live. On live. Okay. Awesome. No, that's fine. Uh, We've, we've put ourselves out of our misery. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, you know, he had that, you had this kind of moment of, of parallel invention, uh, right. Which is, um, you know, sort of a, sort of a documented phenomenon in history, um, where, um, you know, people come up with these, these multiple, these moments of multiple discovery. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think, um, it was, it was awesome that we had that connection, right. And someone who was fluent in the space and receptive to our concept. Um, so, you know, from there, how did, how did he take it and introduce us to first and how did that like relationship and collaboration become formalized? Yeah. So he ultimately introduced us to the founder of first Dean Kamen and Dean, I think shared his vision and didn't know us from Adam. Is that the phrase? That mm-hmm. is the phrase. That's the yeah, one. Okay. Yep. Didn't know us from Adam. And he was like, well, I have a lot of respect for Greg and if Greg vouches for you, then I'd be willing to throw some funding in the direction of this vision to help advance it. And that funding was very specifically to add a really important feature to the game to make it a robotics game instead of just a, a mechanical engineering game or a machine building game. And that was programming and automation. So at the time Roboco was exclusively focused on building bespoke robots through piecing parts together via mechanical engineering practice in order to solve challenges. And then we received funding from DECA slash FIRST to, uh, DECA is the foundation behind FIRST, uh, to add programming and automation. So basically sensor, you could attach new sensor parts to your robots. Those sensor parts would provide input that you could use Python scripting to um, turn into essentially automated behaviors for your robot. And you could solve challenges entirely autonomously once we had added that functionality and once we had that we were we were then a legit robotics tool at that point i mean in many ways you could say we were like game-based cad almost and that's actually the thing that i love the most about roboco is like it's actually this really hardcore engineering tool but it's packaged up inside this really really adorable wrapping yeah, I've seen uh, some of the influencers playing the game have remarked about that. Um, particularly, like the parts painter is sort of an mm, app yeah. with within the app um, yes. where you can do some truly remarkable customizations um, to the colorways of each individual part and your robot. You can apply themes. You can do all kinds of crazy things with the parts painter, and that was part of um, what was funded by First as well. Um, they they mm-hmm. funded. Uh, not just that incredibly critical programming um, feature, but also scoring features around time and cost, um, which added uh, some new dimensions of urgency to the game. Um, obviously, multiple new dimensions of urgency, and they sort of they are sort of balanced along a spectrum, which means that um, you know each of those. N- each of those facets contributes to your score in an individual level. And it gives users a lot more agency in terms of how they pursue the score that they want, whether they do it in the quickest way possible or with the most affordable possible robot that is creates the most uh, efficient playthrough or in the most thorough possible playthrough, getting all the secrets, all the objectives with the most expensive robot they can possibly imagine. So um, it gives you a number of different ways to interact with the game that were not there previously, um, which is really cool. Um, a, n- a couple other exciting things that uh, the first work funded were 
uh, the tutorial campaign, um, the Robo Repair tutorials that oh, yeah. introduce you mm-hmm. to basic game concepps. Um, yeah, many times we were testing the game with folks and they would say, you know, it'd be great if there was just like a robot that I could fix, which would like help me understand what these parts do. And then I can have a robot that is then working instead of having to like make a robot from scratch, which is obviously quite a bit more intimidating than just like fixing a wheel and you're off and running, right? So the Robo Repair tutorials are basically designed around that core concept where um, there's some robotics scenario or vignette that you're approaching um, and that robotics vignette needs um, it needs some in uh, in intervention on the part of, of the engineer. Um, and then, of course, just some uh, additional um, context and um, heads-up display tips that just improve the quality of life um, in the game across the board. Um, so, um, and it, here's another, I think, really interesting angle that I think is worth highlighting in terms of the relationship with FIRST, which is that um, once that door opened, a number of other doors opened. Um, and it was because I think we were able to speak to our relationship with FIRST. So, um, you know, I think folks listening might be interested in the in this idea of like, you know, you make if you make one of these connections, it can lead into additional connections, right? So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So naturally, once we had a partner who was way cooler than us with better brand recognition, <laughs> <laughs> we started uh, telling other prospective partners that we were buddied up with them. It was kind of like you're trying to cast a movie and you're like, we got Tom Cruise or I don't know, that's probably a dated reference. Who's, who's the cool person to cast? Tom Cruise is all the way back in now, baby. He is. Okay. All right. With, with Top Gun. Okay. Sweet. Excellent. Yeah. So we had the (laughs) proverbial equivalent to Tom Cruise, I guess. And, (laughs) uh, and it just made it easier to, to cast other players. Um, the, the biggest, the biggest win that resulted from that is that we talked to a very small company called Roblox, uh, which is, <laughs> uh, for those who aren't aware, one of the metaverse contenders and uh, essentially a platform where people can create their own experiences, share them with others. Many of those experiences are games. Some of them are not. And it's a very popular platform that's populated by billions of, of youth. So when we approached Roblox with our um, with our vision for Roboco, it was kind of a happy coincidence to to learn from Dave, the founder, CEO at Roblox, that when he had originally created the platform, he was kind of envisioning something that looked a lot like Roboco. It was basically a platform where you could use a set of parts to build custom machines and robots to play with other other players. Obviously, the big difference between Roblox and the Unity game engine, which we've built Roboco in, is that the Roblox space is inherently multiplayer. So we ended up landing some funding from Roblox to build a Roblox version of Roboco, which is called Roboco Sports League, that will be out early next year, which you should definitely check out as well. It's a free-to-play experience where you get to go uh, build a bespoke robot again, but instead of solving single-player challenges, you are teaming up with other Roblox players in a competitive field or arena against another team of Roblox players with their own bespoke robot creations to uh, try to win a match. 
it's really cool. And some of those comp, uh, competitive events are also uh, somewhat cooperative in nature. This is yep. Uh, yep. in alignment with FIRST and uh, one of their um, event philosophies, which is the idea of cooperation. I believe they yes. even have that uh, term trademarked. Um, yep. And it is basically the idea that um, uh, when, when their events happen where teams compete head to head and then they have to swap into alliances and work together uh, to solve challenges. Mm -hmm. So uh, the person that you were um, basically adversaries with a moment ago is now next to you trying to figure out a collaboration, um, which is, uh, you know, a very interesting microcosm of human life, if you will. Um, so, um, I, yeah, I, that's good. Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, continue. I, just, I think that's a very, um, a really cool and unique part of their competitive structure um, that you don't see very often in in, in most events um, that are oriented towards youth com competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steeping in Firsts collection of values, graceful uh, um, professionalism is another one of them. They just have these these really sterling values and it's, it's reflected in their community. The culture of the participants um, is, it's just something it's, it's honestly, it's really remarkable and laudable. I went to the, the championship event in Texas last year where all the teams who graduate from the state championships come to compete. And first of all, the intellect on display was quite intimidating and yet at the same time everybody was just so warm and welcoming and collaborative and it's clear everybody was having a really good time but also you know there was a level of intensity and in, in competition as well they took what they did very seriously so what a cool organization they get incredible results they uh you know people who participate in the first program uh have I, it, all the things that we were measuring with our with our Roboco phase two RCT, you know, things like does this increase STEM affinity? Does it increase the the likelihood that this person will go into a STEM career or a career in robotics or engineering? And and their stats are just yeah, the answers are just yes, yes. It definitely increases those things a lot. That was my layman summary. <laughs> <laughs> Another really cool experience that we we're able to have with uh, First Global, which is uh, the global facing sort of sister organization to First uh, First Prime. Um, they uh, collaborated with us late last year to do an actual um, an actual competition uh, held virtually. And I think, you know, for me, like while we've just released the game recently and that sort of feels like you know, a climax to a very long story um, that we've been writing for half a decade now. Um, to me, that competition felt something like uh, the spiritual climax of the of the mm -hmm. project, essentially uh, delivering on the original vision that we had had. Uh, because our initial uh, proposals, where we were talking about creating a game that was oriented towards robotics. Um, specifically mentioned first and specifically spoke about their events. Um, yeah. So to actually use Roboco as the platform for a legitimate first global event um, that involved 37 teams from all around the world. Um, you can watch the broadcasts at fgrc21.roboco.co. These are um, legitimately inspiring um, little hour-long episodes watching these mm -hmm. students compete um, the, the episodes were, uh, we had some MCs, um, uh, Melissa Smith, uh, from, from Google and Dan Richardson from Disney. Those folks, um, 
were connected to us by First, uh, First Global, I should say, um, because um, they're just so well networked and well regarded um, all around the world, right? And and with major organizations like Disney and Google, um, so we are just so fortunate um, to be working with them. Um, so I think that kind of brings us up to uh, present day. Um, so you know, let's talk a little bit about how Launch Week went. Um, you know, how how did it feel to actually put the game out, and you know, what were the initial impressions? Whew. Uh, I think everybody that I talked to after the first couple of days of launch, I basically said that my adrenals were right. shriveled up into desiccated little peas. I don't know <laughs> what adrenal glands actually look like or how big they normally are. Maybe a pea size adrenal would be a huge adrenal, but <laughs> yeah. I assume whatever, I whatever the size is, my adrenals were much smaller than that afterwards. Yeah. Uh, they were spent, and I think the thing that was um, particularly taxing about those first couple of days was just the the multimedia blitz hailstorm of you know streamers dropping videos, live streams on Twitch, reviews coming in, uh, you know things happening on social media, et cetera, et cetera. You sort of felt like you were at this uh, the, you know an air traffic control station, um, but. Uh, the, the the bottom line through those first couple of days, which is the thing that we were waiting our uh, holding our breath for, waiting on pins and needles to find out, is whether or not people liked the game. And I'm really psyched to say that. Let's see, what's our live count? I think we're past forty. We're forty like reviews. Forty three positive. Yeah, forty three. Yep. And if you include the international reviews in other languages, I think it's closer to forty six or forty seven. We're still. 100% positive. That's not a challenge to any listeners out there to go give us our first negative review. Uh, but um, yeah, we're everybody should, I, I guess, knock on wood now. But and obviously, that will happen. There will be people who don't like Roboco, and that's okay. It's not a game for everybody. Yeah, I did want to say too, though, it, it's not just a game with a huge hardcore Python scripting portal. It's also a a game about helping sort of silly people accomplish sort of silly tasks. And there's a lot of room to, I think there's a lot of room in terms of accessibility to make engineering an idea that's not just for the hardest of the hardcore. Uh, so I do think, I think, I think the game does a really nice job covering uh, a lot of depth if you really want to dig into it and letting people really get in there. But I think it has a really good ramp for, for just making it clear that, uh, everybody can can solve some nice practical problems by thinking through things carefully yep absolutely yeah and that, that that's actually one of my favorite things about roboco is that when you do solve a challenge when the thing that you've designed works out the way that you had envisioned even if it takes a couple iterations you do kind of feel like a genius in that moment yeah you really and, do. Uh, yeah, you're, right? You're, it's just the sandwich on a plate. You're like, right. It's pr I'm pretty sure that's the most powerful sandwich to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Is it yeah. possible to smash a pinata more efficiently than this? I don't think so. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But for sure, anybody who, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, we've, we've play tested this game with people of all different ages. I've seen some very young kids play Roboco. I've seen some professional engineers play roboco they both enjoy it equally they obviously make various very different things uh with with very different levels of complexity but um that that's another i think testament to the the power of game-based learning right is like we've 
created this space that's welcoming to all. Um, we'll keep pace with you if you're interested in in going deep and, and digging deep. Um, but we'll create a kind of a welcoming, like a warm, wel- welcoming, inviting, interesting space. If you're just like, what's this robotics thing all about? And I just want to tinker and I want to throw a box on wheels and see if I can ram the table and have the sandwich slide off. And, you know, maybe I want to put some googly eyes and a top hat on it while I'm at it. Um, that That's sort of, I can't think of many other, you know, traditional learning tools that have that much breadth in terms of, uh, you know, target audience audience meeting the target audience where they are. Yeah, I think one of my uh, favorite moments from the trailer that we made for OTK, the cinematic trailer um, that Alyssa, um, uh, one of our marketing assistants, had written, um, was uh, basically this a game about solving humanity's uh, toughest and you know most complex problems. And then it kind of does a smash cut to a robot shaking a vending machine to get a chocolate bar out for one of the humans. Um, and that, that to me is such a hilarious reveal because it's, you know, it's tongue in cheek about like the, you know, <laughs> we're using this highly sophisticated discipline to solve these problems that are, you know, obviously deadly serious. Um, like when your candy bar gets stuck on its way out of, you know, <laughs> row C, uh, <laughs> column E or column one or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, that, that sort of captures the spirit of it. It's, it is, um, goofy uh, robotics tasks for goofy people um but um the depth is all, also there so it's kind of uh, d- depending on how you want to engage it uh, with it it can be it can be both of those things to you you know going into the launch of any product that you've worked on regardless of whether it's been a half a decade or not i think the number one thing aside from whether or not it's a, a financial success the thing that you're most scared about is that this thing that you've gotten so close to that you think is amazing once it goes out into the world you're going to realize that you've been drinking kool-aid and that uh, and that it's crap right and so it's just been really gratifying to to see a community of people and fans form around the game form around the experience and validate that uh, we have in fact made something that's really cool so the adrenal gland is like a yellow hat on your kidney. Okay. I would have thought oh, it was in your right. brain, to be honest. I thought I was oh, thinking yeah, like a yeah. little thing in your brain, right? It's but by no. your kidney? It's like a yellow hat that your kidney wears. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that. too tight now, making my kidneys very uncomfortable. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's Thanks, fascinating. Google. Yeah. yeah. This is a this is an educational podcast. Yeah, we're learning yeah. now. <laughs> this is this is this is the STEM finest hour that was prophesied. Yeah. Um all right. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, I share that with you. I did not sleep very much uh, after we launched it, um, for sure. I think when you've been working on a project for um, as long as we have with as many different people as we have, right? Because some people have been here the entire time, like uh, the folks on this call um, and other people, uh, you know, or on this podcast, I should say, and other people have not um, at all, you know? So, um there's been a lot of just like peaks and valleys to weather and you know you get to the end of it and you're like i know so much and yet so little about this game like i i know the game inside and out but i have no idea what people outside of this organization are going to think about it mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's uh that is a scary feeling for sure so putting it out and seeing so far universally positive responses um and a lot of love in the discord too just people popping yeah. in and 
you know, we've had folks join to be like, just join to tell you that I love this game and it's amazing. Like that's, you know, we oh, just yeah. got that, you know, and it's, it's uh, incredible to see and also super edifying um, because I think anyone who does game development knows that it is ridiculously hard, um, uh, both from an actual creation of the content perspective, like understanding enough math to make a game that, you know, accurately represents the physics of our real world um, is certainly something that I couldn't do um, even if you gave me 10 years. Um, and then, you know, just getting attention on any game at all and and getting the word out and creating partnerships that um, move the game forward. All of it uh, is some of the hardest stuff I've ever done personally. Um, so it's been really exciting to see the game come out and be positively received. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think the most fun part now is just being humbled day after day by the intelligence on display in the community, the things that people are creating yes. with the tool that I never thought was even possible. The things that people are talking about just conceptually, they're using words that I have to look up on a regular basis. Yeah, <laughs> teenagers iterating on low like, slip differentials and yes. and that sentence does not mean very much to me even having yep. just said it. So there's definitely some some rarefied like yeah, engineering terminology being thrown around in the discord. And and that is I mean I think that speaks volumes about the power of of games for learning, right? Like going back all the way to the to the uh the early works of Jim G talking about how these affinity spaces can form around games and that these affinity spaces can do things that are that in a school or like formal learning environment would be recognized as absolutely brilliant. And they do it for free and they do it for fun. Uh, even though it's a ton of work and it's just like incredible that games can motivate people to go on such a profound learning trajectory uh, it, when it's so hard to get them to go on similar trajectories in school. And so that, that's, that's been the, the coolest thing I think since launch is just seeing this community of people. Um, yeah, just have, have these incredible, incredibly complex and sophisticated conversations about a video game and the things that, that they're making in that video game. And then of course there's the creative expression side because Roboco is also a game in which you can flex your artistic muscle as well. And so it's been a lot of fun to see people uh, just create things that are, are beautiful and interesting to look at as well. Certainly my team of marketing uh, liberal arts major types has primarily been making cool pixel art and fun pop culture yeah. references when left to our own devices. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, you're right. See, seeing people work on, uh, that, and then, you know, so seeing like, if you look at our workshop right now, there's just like a little pixel art Pikachu up there. If you want to download a little Pikachu, you could do that. Um, but you know, you could also download a double wishbone suspension car. Um, and if you know what that means, that's probably pretty exciting to you. Um, I sort of know what that means. I know what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a picture of one. <laughs> Neither Filament Games nor Roboco endorses any recreation of commercially owned characters from Nintendo or any other corporation. That is 100% correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, user generated. It may or may not content. be Pikachu. It could yeah. be a yellow vole. <laughs> that's true. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think now that I look at it more closely, it's a vole. Yeah. I think that's yeah, just a squirrel. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, uh, you know, content created by the users of the user community. Uh, you know, that's uh, 
not filament games property <laughs> um, so feel free to uh take up any objections with the users um but yeah um actually i mean i do think the workshop is a legitimately super cool feature of the game that i do want to oh, call yeah. out again um the fact that when you make a robot you can immediately upload it to steam workshop for other people to download it. If you have an automation script, you can include it with that. Um, and if you've beaten any levels with that robot, um, that will be indicated in the workshop itself. Um, so it's also a way that if you're if you're really really stuck on a level, um, you know you can pop into the workshop and filter by that level and maybe find some robots that'll that'll unstick you, get you out of that out of that place um, or out of that stuck spot. Um, so I just I want to close it off by you know what you're saying um, about how you know it, it's amazing to see the interactions in the community and how people are responding to the game, um, you know. So as far as that goes, like you know, what does this mean in terms of like the overall arc of Filament? Like how does Roboco sort of represent kind of everything that Filament set out to do? Yeah, and th this is where I think we enter double-edged sword territory, going all the way back to some of the early prototypes that we created that allowed us to fund the company and get it, get it off the ground. We created from the very beginning, we started coming up with visions for sandbox video game spaces where the problem spaces were open-ended and through player players would have to engage in inquiry and hypothesis formation mm -hmm. and honestly hard work in order to solve the problem spaces and there would never be a right or wrong answer. There'd always be a multitude of different ways that you could go about solving the problem. In the case of a game like Roboco, there's literally infinite ways that you could solve any of these challenge levels. And in my mind, that's that's a critical that involves a critical set of soft skills that every student should be graduating with going into a world that is uh, a world that is increasingly under pressure from robots ironically from you know automation machine learning robots taking jobs and uh and these these skills are these uniquely human skills these creative thinking problem solving uh systems thinking critical thinking collaboration etc these 21st century skills are really really hard to teach uh and and i haven't i haven't seen very many traditional educational tools that really that really nail those skills. And I feel like we've kind of, I, I hate to brag, but I think we just did it with Roboco. Like, I think we totally hit the, the nail on the head. Um, and the reason that I say it's a double-edged sword is that for, for a game to immerse a player, to truly immerse and authentically immerse a player in these 21st century skills, it has to be pretty hard. And I'm, I'm just worried that, so like our, our most recent review, which just rolled in probably literally like an hour ago, ends with this sentence, don't be fooled by the goofy aesthetic. This game has some serious depth to, to, to sink your teeth into. And for some people, that's going to be really fun. That's how some people define fun, right? It's like they want to nerd out and they want to dive into a really basically, yeah, game-based CAD and they want to build and program robots to solve challenges, even though that's really uh, a hard and complex task. Rewarding, but also hard and complex. So the question is, is there actually a 
sustainable market for products like this. And, and I mean that both in the consumer entertainment space where people are primarily looking for fun, that, that that's their first objective, and also in the institutional education space where I think experiences like this would be welcome, except that there's not always an abundant amount of time and experiences that are deep are necessarily also time consuming. So I'll leave it at that. I think what we've created is, is awesome. I think it's important for education in the 21st century. I think it imparts absolutely critical human-based, uniquely human skills. What remains to be seen is whether or not there's a demand at scale for what we've created. I think that's very well said. Um, you know, in my mind, the way that uh, Roboco has already touched a lot of lives, um, you know, we're seeing um, a ton of reviews, a ton of uh, responses, and, um, you know, quite a few units moving as well. So um, it's, it's having an impact on people. And for me, um, in my capacity here at Filament, I've run, you know, several events for like middle school students, right? And uh, there might be 100 middle school students at that event. Um, speaking from personal experience, you're going to max out at maybe 10% of those students paying attention to you. Um, and of that 10%, you're probably going to max out at like three to five or, you know, 30 to 40% of people actually getting something out of it. Right. Um, and so, but at the same time, I always consider that to be a success because you never know, you know, what, what impact, what new trajectory, uh, those few people might, uh, might be going on, um, once they've had that experience. So, um, for me, I take incredible pride in the amount of impact that Roboco has already had on people. Um, if you read some of the reviews, it's like there are definitely people who have been waiting their whole lives for a game like this to exist. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they feel, uh, you know, a sort of mix of elation and relief having found Roboco and, you know, having to dis- having discovered its its Python capacities. Um, hmm. So um been amazing to see that. Um, and it's like, you know, I think. I think there's uh, a, a certain kind of person in this world that most games uh, might not speak to, but I think Roboco speaks to them loud and clear. Um, mm. And I think that's a really special and important aspect of this project as well. Um, and so with that, um, I think uh, I think that, that kind of represents our, our closing thoughts. Um, so for those listening at home, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Dan, thanks for this uh, lovely walk down memory lane um, and kind of waxing philosophical about Roboco and what it means to all of us. Um, yeah, pleasure. Really uh, excited to have you all go try it out. So as we said, it is on Steam Early Access. Um, you can find it at roboco.co. Uh, that website is uh, abundant with links to various Roboco related things, the social media platforms, the dev blog, and of course, Steam where you can purchase it. And then most importantly, uh, the Roboco Discord. We would love to have you join the community, get involved, share your ideas, share your your work, share your robots. Um, hope to see you all in there. Um, so yeah, uh, that kind of that wraps up today's episode. Thank you all for coming and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.